Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And welcome back. This is going to be part two of a two-part episode on the urban evolution of wildlife. Now, if you haven't heard part one yet, we recommend you go back, listen to that one first. It should have been the episode right before this one. And that would have been the one where we discussed how animals are adapting to the ecosystems engineered directly by humans. That's right. We talked about everything from uh, coyotes and raccoons to the to the the urban myth of the alligators that uh, that thrive in New York City's sewer system. Yeah, we discussed how animals react to the trash we produce, how that affects them for good and ill, and mm-hmm. how it potentially drives evolution. How they adapt to the surfaces of urban landscapes. How cities create these fragmented islands of biodiversity within them, and of course, the question of the mutant alligators. That's <laughs> the one on everybody's mind. Uh, But so many of the most interesting examples of urban evolution in the animal kingdom actually occur among our old friends, the avians, the modern dinosaurs. That's right. A number of the uh, the, the cool stories of, of urban wildlife do relate to to birds, and you know it makes sense, right? They are the ones that are able to fly from park to park. They are the ones that don't have to worry about uh, they don't have to worry as much about crossing the street in many uh, situations. Yeah, they do seem quite able to penetrate our urban ecosystems and often establish new niches there, mm-hmm. ones that might be parallel to the niches that they have out in nature, say uh, the parallel between a bird that naturally dwells among the rocks of a cliff face becoming a bird that dwells among the rocks of a cliff face that is actually the side of a building. Right. Now, in this episode, because we wanted to talk about birds, we thought it would be great to talk to a local Atlanta bird expert. So we are going to be talking to a bird educator named Jason Ward today, a uh, a guy who we got to the pleasure to meet in the studio the other day who is a little bit obsessed with the birds of the city. That's right. This was a fabulous uh, chat we got to have because it was a lot more local than most of our conversations. Uh, for starters, he was in the studio with us. And uh, and then also we're talking about Atlanta. We're talking about this strange city we live in that is, uh, that is situated within a forest and uh, all the birds that make their home here as well. Right. So before we get into our conversation with Jason, uh, just a little bit in the way of introduction. Jason Ward is an educator for Zoo Atlanta. He's a writer for the National Audubon Society and a science communicator who specializes in birds. Now, he actually leads bird walks here in the metro Atlanta area. He's guest lectured at Emory University, and he participates in a lot of projects and studies pertaining to birds in Atlanta, including something called Project Safe Flight, which studies bird collisions with buildings. Mm-hmm. Also, West Nile virus studies, uh, breeding bird surveys, migratory bird surveys, and all kinds of stuff. So I guess we will get right into our interview with Jason Ward. So, Jason Ward, we really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, So I think first we'd just like you to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Jason Ward. Um, I'm an educator. I work for Zoo Atlanta and also the Atlanta Audubon Society. Those are the bird nerds of Atlanta. Um, I am also a writer for the National Audubon Society as well. I lead field trips here in Atlanta at Piedmont Park. Um, My field trips are the first Saturday every single month at 8 o'clock. If you live in the metro Atlanta area, feel free 
to come by. It is a great time. So, Jason, how did you first get interested in birds? That's a great question. So, my infatuation or obsession with birds started at a very, very young age. Um, I grew up in the Bronx, New York, which isn't really the first town or environment people think of as it pertains to wildlife in general. <laughs> um, but grew up there um, as a kid, had an infatuation with dinosaurs, as I'm sure a lot of kids go through that phase. Since I couldn't walk outside and actually see these dinosaurs that I was in love with so much, my infatuation then turned to a variety of different wildlife with birds eventually being the front runners, which is kind of ironic. It kind of comes full circle because birds are modern-day dinosaurs. So that is how my love of birds began. Didn't really grow up with a lot of money in the Bronx. Um, so my form of entertainment was going to the library and I guess just packing a desk full of as many bird books as possible. And that love then uh, cultured and it grew. And here I am today. And I am, I guess, a huge bird nerd now <laughs> due to that infatuation as a child of uh, feathered dinosaurs. Do you have a favorite feathered dinosaur here in the Atlanta area? I certainly do. Um, so I started this hashtag on Twitter to show my love for my favorite feathered dinosaur. The hashtag is Sky Lamborghini. <laughs> um, the reason that I have that hashtag is because this particular species of bird is extremely fast. It is, in fact, the fastest animal in the world. This animal is the peregrine falcon. Um, this animal can be found all over the world, all on six continents, excluding um, Antarctica, of course. But um, the reason I call this bird the Sky Lamborghini is because it has been clocked at speeds at approximately 240 miles per hour in a dive. Um, this is a bird that you can see regardless of if you live on a coastal city, if you live in a big bustling city like we do here in Atlanta, they can be found nesting on skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. So they use those skyscrapers to their advantage, and it's exhilarating to just sit there and watch them, what we call a, a, a stoop, and they'll dive down incredibly fast to uh, catch their prey. It's exciting. What is their prey usually? So if you're stooping at an incredibly high speed, it wouldn't be beneficial for you to chase prey on the ground. Right. Because <laughs> you'll probably, you probably won't last long employing that kind of strategy. So they are what we call avivores. So they hunt feathered prey as well. So they hunt airborne birds in the sky, and they have a really ingenious method to uh, how they attack their prey. Um, since their prey is airborne at the time, they'll start from approximately a mile overhead, and then they'll start their dive, and then they'll allow their momentum to do the work. They'll take their talons and kind of knuckle them um, and make like a little a, a bird fist, if you will, and they'll stun their prey in midair with a flyby punch. Wow. Nice. I so, never heard that. Yeah. And, and then, of course, as the prey is tumbling in the air, they'll circle back around. They're very acrobatic birds. They'll circle back around and catch the prey midair and then um, take care of it from that point. 
Now, we've been talking about how a lot of scientists, zoologists around the world have been observing the ways birds have changed the way they make a living in cities as opposed to their natural wild habitats. When you just take the example of the peregrine falcon, do you see any difference about how the falcon hunts or behaves in a city versus in a rural area? That is a great question. The answer to that is yes. So, in their natural habitat, they're nesting in uh, mountainous areas and also uh, cliff sides as well. They use those high vantage points to survey their landscape. Well, cities kind of offer them that same perspective. They're able to stand or sit on uh, skyscrapers and survey their landscape there. Now, there's a different, I guess, perspective that, that living in the city gives these particular species of bird. During migration... A lot of these birds are passing through these cities. And as we know with light pollution, it's a little difficult for these birds to manage uh, migrating through these cities. What these birds will then do is they'll change their behavior. And during nighttime, instead of resting and, and sleeping through the night, they'll actually be a little bit more active at nighttime using the light pollution to their advantage mm. and hunting prey at nighttime as the birds fly by these buildings. Wow. So that's one case where light pollution is going to be working out in specifically in favor of predators and against prey. Exactly. Exactly. So if you are towards the bottom of the food chain, light pollution is not your friend um, (laughs) for a number of reasons. There are predators who will use that extra light to their advantage. And also, if you're trying to pass through a city to get to your breeding grounds, that light pollution is not going to be your friend. A lot of birds become disoriented and unfortunately fly into those windows. And as part of uh, Project Safe Flight here in Atlanta, we unfortunately find a lot of those birds in uh, certain areas of the city. Now, I was chatting with you before we started the, the interview. You, you work with Zoo Atlanta. And, uh, and I frequently visit Sioux Atlanta with my, my son, who's, who's five, who's really into dinosaurs as well. So one of our favorite birds at Zoo Atlanta is Cecil the cassowary. Uh, and, and you get to work with Cecil. What, it, what is it like to help care for a cassowary? It is incredibly fun to <laughs> care for a cassowary. It's also incredibly dangerous okay. at the same time. And I guess that's what, that's what adds to the fun part of it. You have to be extremely careful with a bird who is approximately four feet tall and has a talon on each foot that is about five inches long, you have to exercise extreme caution in a situation like that. Despite his menacing appearance, he is a frugivore. So his diet consists of apples, bananas. Um, So he's not looking to eat me. Um, If he were to harm someone, which he wouldn't, but if he would, it would be purely out of defense. Um, So knowing that, and he's a relatively old bird as well, so he is a lot calmer in his his years. So it's extremely rewarding to work with a bird like him. Now, you mentioned that Cecil's um, uh, fecal matter is is particularly um, uh, noxious, however. Yeah. um, (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So um, big birds produce big poop. I guess that's the best way to say that. Um, And you have to be very, very cautious as you're walking around the enclosure not to step in any. Just to let everyone know, I was extra cautious today. I I haven't tracked any in here with me, so (laughs) you're fine. We Um, would understand if you did. And if I did, you would also know by now. Um, (laughs) Because despite the fact that he eats fruits, um, his his poop is incredibly, uh, 
I guess the scientific term would be stinky. <laughs> does, it, does it smell different than mammal poop? Yes. Yeah. I don't know how to describe the difference, though. It does smell different. Um, this is going to sound so odd. It's a little bit more fragrant than <laughs> mammal than mammal poop is. Um, and and I would, despite the fact that I do sound like I'm complaining about it, I would much rather be cleaning up after a bird than a mammal. You know, this touches on something that we uh, we discussed in a, in a recent episode that we recorded uh, on the topic of of, of, of farts in general and, and flatulence. <laughs> uh, I, I was really not aware prior to this research that birds do not fart. Yes. I just hadn't thought about this before, the uh, the difference in the, uh, the, the microbiome. There's actually a really good book. I'm not sure if you spoke about this in, in that episode, but there's a book out there called Does It Fart? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Guess what inspired us. <laughs> exactly. Uh, written by some of my friends on Twitter. Oh, cool. And they uh, cover that exact topic. So it is actually in wherever you can find books now. So I would uh, encourage people to rush out and get it. It's surprising what you would learn about which animals fart and which ones do not. Oh, yeah. That, that's a great little book, especially how you can just you can just pick it up and just see where you land and just learn about a uh, particular creature's uh, farting ability or lack of farting ability. And And topics such as flatulence... Um, it's important to talk about things like that because there's a lot of people who view wildlife and they have these irrational fears about the animals that live around them. So being able to bridge that gap in a playful manner can kind of uh, spark curiosity in, in people, especially younger ones, and get them to want to pursue a career in, in, in conservation. So they're doing a great thing by putting out a book like that. Um, Hopefully, we can do a part two about birds. We'll see how that goes in the future. Jason, on that subject, do you feel like you have good insights into strategies about how to get people to see the wildlife in their city, uh, especially birds, as sort of neighbors as opposed to pests or, you know, things that people don't like? Yes. um, People tend to fear what they don't understand. Um, At least that's my experience with it. Um, if individuals would just go out there with an open mind, of course, and explore. Uh, Atlanta is a really good city to start something like that. Um, It is said that we are the city in the forest, um, and that holds true. Uh, There's a lot of old-growth forest here in the city. So just merely stepping out to your neighborhood park, especially during a time like this, which is uh, springtime, uh, stepping out early in the morning and just listening to the sounds around you, you'll hear a chorus of so many different species. The more you know about them, the more you'll realize that we need these animals around. They're not here to destroy our gardens or to peck at the sides of our homes um, making us highly annoyed when we're trying to get sleep in the morning. <laughs> they are they're here for a reason and each and every organism here uh, has a relationship with the next one. It's extremely important that we learn more about these species. So I would suggest individuals, if they have a particular species of animal that they're interested in, for example, with me, it was birds, of course. What I decided to do approximately five years ago was just go on the Internet and search for organizations in the Atlanta area that were involved with birds. 
That is how I was introduced to the Atlanta Audubon Society. Um, I also went to their calendar and found out that they had field trips that they would lead. And I said to myself, okay, this is a perfect opportunity for me to find out more about the species in the city that I live in. I purchased my first pair of binoculars, and the rest is history from that point on. Now, speaking of birds that, that live in the city, uh, I'm, I'm continually amazed when I encounter uh, a wild turkey in the Atlanta area. Uh, can, you, can you speak to the, I mean, are they thriving in Atlanta? Or are they? They are. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Um, there has been wild turkey sightings right in the middle of downtown. Wow. Um, it seems as if they're waiting for the crosswalk, the, the light on, <laughs> on, on the traffic light to cross the street at times. Um, they're surprisingly big birds when mm-hmm. you see them in person. They are really good at going unnoticed until they're just in the middle of a street corner. Um, oddly enough, I have not seen a wild turkey in Fulton County. Hmm. Um, and I've been, you know, studying birds in the Atlanta area for about five years now. I've seen them in Cobb, but I haven't seen them in Fulton County, which is the main county here in Atlanta. But they're here. They're definitely here. And uh, over the course of a year, with migration coming and going, there's approximately 350 different species of birds that can be found in the metro Atlanta area. Now, we have done in the past uh, an episode, actually a couple episodes where this came up, but one full dedicated episode on the striking ways that birds in many ways are a lot smarter than people realize. Uh, We did one on avian intelligence. And I wonder, what are some of the cleverest things you've seen birds doing in the city or that you're aware of birds doing in the city? Like, do you see corvids hacking Atlanta and the way they hack so many other situations? I certainly do. First and foremost, before we dive into that, I want to encourage everyone to go back a couple of episodes and listen to when Joe, at I think it was at the eight-minute mark, he said that <laughs> birds were, well, according to him, he said that prior to doing the research that he did for that episode, he thought that birds weren't really smart. Well, we have corvids here in Atlanta. We have American crows and we have fish crows as well. They will do things such as they'll grab a nut that is incredibly hard for them to crack. They'll go to a busy street and they'll stand or sit on top of a uh, the street light, drop the nut down to the ground. And as the cars roll by, they'll roll over the nuts, oh. crack the nut. And then when that light turns red, they know to fly down and collect their treat. Um, we have other species like the uh, brown-headed uh, nuthatch that uses tools as well. You all talked about tool use in that episode as well. So this particular species can use bark to pry open uh, pieces of a tree to look for little tasty insects inside of that tree as well. So yeah, there's a lot of different tactics used by birds here in the city. One of my favorite strategies that birds use is brood parasitism. And Mm -hmm. that is done by the brown-headed cowbird, a species that a lot of people dislike because of that behavior. Um, So what this bird does is its natural behavior was to follow around bison herds. And uh, they they lived a very nomadic lifestyle. They would follow around bison herds and and feed off of the insects that bit these uh, buffalo. Now, when European settlers came in, they cleared a lot of forest, which opened up 
a lot more uh, habitat for them. So they started to expand. Now this bird is um, laying, what it does is during the breeding season, since it lives a very nomadic lifestyle, it lays its egg in another bird's nest. Um, It doesn't raise its own chicks. So then that unsuspecting parent has has to raise this chick that is about five times as large as it is. Now to a lot of people, that's very, very cruel. And it gets even crueler because (laughs) that parent keeps a watchful eye on that relationship between its egg, its chick, and its now host parent. If that host parent decides to kick that egg out of its nest, what that cowbird will then do is return back to that nest and destroy it. Wow. Or they'll return back to that nest, kick all of the other eggs out, and relay an egg. It's pretty much like a mafia mentality. (laughs) (laughs) And that is why I love these birds so much. That's also why a lot of people dislike them so much. They'll be okay, though. That's fascinating. It's like if I can't have it, no one can. Pretty much. Or it's like you're going to raise this chick Mm -hmm. one way or another. One of the studies that we looked at already that I thought was really interesting was about birds making adaptive use of trash and litter in the cities. There was a study from, I think it was some zoologists from Mexico City who found that finches and sparrows in Mexico City were lining their nests with cigarette butts, which were functioning as natural insecticides to keep parasites out of the nests because of the nicotine that was in the littered cigarette butts. Have you seen other ways uh, that birds are making adaptive use of trash and litter in the cities? I have. Um, So it's really, really weird. Uh, It's an unknown fact with birders. If you go to one of our landfills here in the the metro area, it's a really, really cool place to see certain species of bird, (laughs) which is um, a place you would never think to go watch birds, Um, specifically gulls. Gulls love landfills. Um, vultures, you can find vultures there as well. So there's a, there's a ton of different reasons that you can find birds using trash. You can find them using it to attract particular food items. Um, you can find gulls there because insects like to visit landfills, of course. So you could find them dining on those guys. But see, now there is a complicated relationship there. Because, sure, you'll find certain species of finches and sparrows using items to act as a, uh, an insect repellent. But then you'll also have instances in which birds will choose the wrong trash item, mm-hmm. um, which is why I cringe whenever I see someone release balloons in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, balloons are extremely harmful for a number of species, particularly birds. Birds will commonly bring little pieces of either balloon or balloon string back to their nest, and that can either be swallowed by the chick or the string from the balloon can either get entangled and uh, hurt that baby bird as well. So there's kind of a love-hate relationship in a, in a, in a sense with uh, birds and trash there. Well, what about the impact of just chemical pollution in, uh, in an urban environment? See, chemical pollution actually was responsible for the decline in a lot of species that I find dear, um, the raptors. Um, All across America, there was uh, use of pesticides that wound up hurting species like the bald eagle or like the sky Lamborghini, the peregrine falcon. 
we started to see trends in uh, eggs being, the shells and the eggs being very, very thin, which led to a decline in the species over a certain period of time. So I'm glad that this species has now made a, a turn for the better and they're doing a lot, uh, their numbers are rising over the years. But yes, chemical pollution can definitely harm certain species, definitely. All right, we are about to take a quick break, and when we come back, there will be more of our conversation with Jason Ward. What about mating? Have you seen ways that urban landscapes or any human-created environments change the ways that birds find mates, produce, uh, create problems, or produce interesting workarounds or adaptations? Yes. Um, so, as we know, living in a city is tough, or at least it's tougher than living in a rural area because it's louder. It's louder in a city. You got a lot of cars passing by, a lot of just noise in general, whether it's construction or just random city noise. Birds that live in urban environments have learned to sing louder due to the fact that they have to compensate for the noise pollution around them. So it's been found recently that urban birds sing louder than their rural counterparts hmm. um, because they have to. That is their way of advertising to the ladies in the area that, hey, I am big and strong. You need to mate with me. It's a little tougher in the city because there's music blasting and there's jackhammers going off. So those birds need to spend a little bit extra time uh, working on their singing notes. And yes, they do a, a very, very good job at it. <laughs> So we've talked a little bit about garbage already, but how do birds adapt to the different uh, uh, food sources that are going to be available within an urban environment? Living in the city, um, coming from a city like New York, we are known for a lot of things. We're known for pizza. <laughs> we're known for taxis. And we're known for a certain rodent problem. Um, <laughs> now, that's not one we're proud of, but birds have adapted to that lifestyle. Um, Red-tailed hawks are extremely prevalent in urban landscapes because there's tons of rodents for oh. them to eat. Um, they are opportunistic generalists. They have a large variety of food that is can be found in their diet. They'll eat birds in certain parts of the country, rodents, reptiles, amphibians. If it walks or flies, they'll eat it. Um, <laughs> which is why they can be found in cities thriving. There are tons of food for them to eat in cities. So they have definitely taken advantage of the fact that we've expanded and uh, grown in these cities. Now, what about birds that eat some of the human foods of cities? We've definitely read studies about uh, mice in New York City adapting to, like, they're, they're getting different gene prevalences to favor higher fat diets. I wonder, do we see anything like that in birds? Yeah, so there are a couple of species that are unfortunately invasive species, particularly the house sparrow and the European starling. Um, house sparrows are sometimes referred to as Burger King sparrows <laughs> <laughs> because you can find them in any fast food parking lot dining on French fries, which I don't know how they do because I'm not the hugest fan of their French fries, but they seem to love it. Um yeah, they've taken advantage. Birds are opportunistic in general. So if there's some kind of food around, they'll make the best of it. And um, 
we see that with European starlings and house sparrows. Now, this isn't quite a, a full-blown urban environment, but uh, I, Joe, I think I, I chatted with you a little bit about this already, but uh, my family recently visited uh, the island of uh, Kauai in Hawaii, and I was, I was really blown away by um, how successful uh, chickens are. There, They're like chickens, just just everywhere you look, uh, in in the parking lots of fast food restaurants, along the roadside, like in the forests. Uh, it, it it was kind of a testament to just how uh, how successful a creature like that can be when it, it it finds an unexploited niche. That is extremely true. There's one reason why those particular birds um, are so successful there. That is a very isolated place. They they definitely have predators there, but when you live on the mainland in, in, a, in a high populated area like we do here, there are curveballs thrown at you. If there were a large population of chickens here in the in this urban environment, they would have to contend with a very, very menacing animal. Um, this animal is said to be responsible for the demise of between one to four billion birds in the United States alone every year. And that is our fluffy, wonderful house cat. Uh. <laughs> um, chickens are ground-dwelling birds. Um, they don't spend a lot of time in trees. And that is horrible. It's a horrible strategy when contending with one of the best domestic hunters around. House cats are extraordinarily good at stalking and catching prey, and chickens are relatively easy for them to wrangle and take down. I'm not sure how well that particular island is doing with their house cat population, but I do not think chickens would do that well here because of that issue. So we were talking about ways to sort of be neighborly towards uh, the uh, the birds in our environment. Would, would you contend that one of one of the ways to do that would be to do what you can to help uh, efforts to curb feral cat populations? There's no doubt about that. Um, feral cat populations are responsible for the demise of uh, not only birds, but small reptiles, um, some of our harmless species of snakes, even animals that a lot of people find cute in general, like chipmunks as well. Um, I have a pretty bad stray cat issue in my neighborhood that I live in. And occasionally you'll find them with a chipmunk in their mouth, despite the fact that the neighbors are feeding them. Hmm. So a lot of people think that, you know what, if I feed these cats, they won't kill as much or they won't feel the need to kill as much. Well, that's not the case because these cats are doing it out of fun. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not really consuming the prey that they eat most of the time. They're killing it and leaving it there. So I would say that, uh, I mean, a number of ways to help to be neighborly to the birds that live in your areas, please bring your cat inside. On top of that, plant native plants as well. And if you want to put out a bird feeder or a bird bath, please feel obligated to do so. Just realize that when you do put out a feeder, you're not only feeding the sparrows and finches, but you also are feeding those hawks as well. <laughs> so you've mentioned that you've been interested in birds in multiple cities. And I wonder if you see city-specific or location-specific adaptations among even the same species of birds. Do New York birds do anything different than Atlanta birds do? Or is it pretty much the same across urban environments? 
Um, it's largely the same, but you do see different uh, minor changes with certain species. For example, the red-tailed hawk, which is the most widespread hawk in North America, they have adapted to the fact that not only is New York City known for their large rodent population, but they have tons of pigeons in New York as well. Red-tailed hawks um, are more likely to take down avian prey than they are here in, in Atlanta. Um, the hawks that I've seen here in Atlanta usually hunt squirrels. That is their main food source here, uh, small mammals. So you do see that, you do see different trends in different parts of the country based on what food is available for them. So here's a weird question where I'll ask you to speculate if you're comfortable. I want you to imagine human cities like Atlanta were to continue existing pretty much as they are for a million years and that the birds that live in those cities the, that live there now continue to evolve to better fit their habitats. What would you expect those birds to be like in, you know, a long time distant from now? How, how would birds change if they just keep adapting to be better and better city dwellers? Have you ever seen um, Planet of the Apes? <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, you'd find um, a lot of what you're seeing now, you'd find birds more finely tuned to live in their environments. I've always wondered how far into the future we can go and continue to see the startling numbers that we see with window collisions with birds, hmm. um, you'd think that after a while, certain birds would avoid uh, cities on their migratory routes, and uh, those birds would obviously be able to pass their genes on to the next generation, and their offspring would be also a little bit more likely to avoid large cities. Now, that isn't a great outlook for people who love viewing these animals because we enjoy the fact that they... Uh, stop over at our cities for a couple of weeks at a time. So I think if we looked into the future, you'd find birds with what one could describe as superpowers. <laughs> um, these birds already have superpowers as it is. Basically, so owls have this amazing sense of hearing. They can hear uh, a mouse's heartbeat. That is how in tune their hearing is. So if you think about an animal like that over the course of thousands and thousands of years having to deal with noise pollution at a city level, you'd imagine that particular species um, develop an even more acute sense of hearing based on the fact that he has to contend with his environment around him. So one could only imagine uh, what kind of adaptations city birds would start to develop. Um, you'd also imagine that these birds would eventually be split off from their rural uh, counterparts and become subspecies. That is something that I can imagine happening as well. Now, coming back to the uh, the, the bird population of Zoo Atlanta, uh, what are some other uh, bird specimens that you're particularly fond of there? My absolute favorite bird there is Sequoia. He is our bald eagle. Mm. Oh, um, he is a non-releasable bird. Um, he, he's had an accent that caused a permanent wing injury, but he's full of charisma. Um, <laughs> and he has grown comfortable with people walking right up to his enclosure. He used to startle very easily and retreat to the back of the enclosure, but now he'll sit 
really, really proudly on one of his perches. And occasionally you'll hear him emit this very wimpy <laughs> kind of sound, <laughs> um, which a lot of people are startled by and surprised by because they think that when a bald eagle opens his mouth, this incredible uh, screech is going to come out. But in reality, it's this kind of squeaky sound that they make. <laughs> Can um, you do an impression? I cannot. <laughs> I cannot. I would only be doing a disservice to all bald eagles everywhere if I tried to do that. But I do remember when uh, when Zuidlana first obtained uh, him, he he was behind some some blinders essentially just to to keep I guess people from spooking him. Yeah, he used, he used to be a very um he used to be very easy to spook him. And since he came to us with that wing injury, the last thing we would want is for him to uh, injure it even further. So, um but Luckily for us, he has gotten a lot more calm over the years, and he's doing a lot better. Um, so his name is Sequoia. That is definitely one of my favorite animals. Also, we have the uh, we have a pair of milky eagle owls. Um, they are the third largest species of owl in the world, the absolute largest in Africa. They have a really cool nickname. I want you to try to figure out how they got this nickname. Okay, so. In Africa, they are called monkey-eating owls. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, one would assume it's from uh, it's from eating the monkeys. <laughs> you are a genius. Yes, um, yeah. So they are strong enough to uh, pluck small monkeys right off the tops of trees. They have incredible grip strength with their talons. Um, if for one day that owl decided to fly down and grasp my forearm the force that he would be able to uh, emit would be equal to a Rottweiler's bite. Wow. wow. Um, and this is all coming from a bird who is, on average, about five pounds. So not a very heavy bird, but one that is extremely strong. Yeah, you, you notice, like, anybody who's ever come across an angry flock of geese is, like, surprised by how strong birds can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, geese, geese especially. Um, there are... Tons of videos around the world where geese just stand up to everything. (laughs) (laughs) I always give them a wide berth whenever I pass them. Um, They are uh, formidable animals. Um, I've seen clips of geese going after bears. So, yeah, just avoid geese, everyone, when you see them, especially if they have babies around. They become dinosaurs. Now, uh, speaking of large birds... Did you work with the ostriches any uh, at Zoo Atlanta, or is that kind of a separate department? That's actually a separate department. So ostriches, since they share the same enclosure with our giraffes and our zebra, they are part of the hoofstock part of the zoo. So they are unfortunately not under our care in the bird department. Of course, when we th- when we think about these large uh, uh, birds like the ostrich, uh, uh, I don't know about you, but I can't help but, but think back to my uh, uh, my, my childhood uh, prehistoric animal books and some of the the, the large birds of the past. Uh, did you or do you have a particular favorite uh, prehistoric bird? Yes, um, I believe you all spoke about this bird once as well, the terror bird. Mm. Mm. That is a bird that I would love to see these days from a safe distance, of course. <laughs> um, just a bird of that size with uh, features, the, the, the kind of features that it had, I would love to see that 
um, brought to life. Now, that is not an endorsement for someone to try to do an experiment and try <laughs> to bring it back to life. But every every time I see a trailer for a new Jurassic Park movie, I, I'm thinking there are all these uh, prehistoric mammals and prehistoric birds you could be including in your terrifying tourist attraction. Why not bring those guys back? Why not bring back the MOA? The MOA yeah. is one I was, I was always uh, impressed by. In addition to that, not only could you be bringing back some of these ancient birds, you can put feathers on some of yes. these dinosaurs <laughs> that we know had feathers. We know that theropods such as Velociraptor and such as my favorite Deinonychus, which is actually the ones that are portrayed as Velociraptors, mm-hmm. but... That's a different tangent all in itself. (laughs) Um, We know that these birds, I mean, that these dinosaurs now had feathers. So it would be wonderful to see them portrayed as such in these Jurassic Park movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially since, uh, I mean, for so many kids, like Jurassic Park is is an early way of uh, building up your excitement about dinosaurs. And I feel like they kind of have a responsibility to get some of the, the the educational aspects of the product right. Well, you'd think by association, it would also make kids respect birds more, right? Yeah. If the dinosaurs had feathers. Yeah, I think they found a loophole in the last movie that they put out. They uh, In the plot, it's said that these dinosaurs on exhibit are genetically modified to, I guess, resemble what people think how people think they would look (laughs) so i guess they get around the loophole of trying to be as accurate as possible because for example that large creature that jumps out of the water at the end of the movie the mosasaurus it was not that large Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i think they can take certain liberties uh with that loophole there but still i'd like to see feathers yeah (laughs) that sounds kind of cheap jason i think this is always a good thing to ask people do you have a favorite book on birds something that you wish everybody would read so I do have a favorite book on birds. Um, it's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. I'll start by saying that because it's not your typical book. Um, my favorite book on birds is actually Sibley's. It is what we use to identify birds. Um, <laughs> it is an identification book. Mm-hmm. Um, it is packed full of uh different features that each species has. Now, it's not a book that you're going to dive into and read at a nightstand by yourself. Actually, I take that back (laughs) because uh, a friend of mine on Twitter known as The Birdist, he had a a child recently and he posted a photo of him reading that book to his child as like a bedtime story. So I think that we should all uh, aspire to do things like that, even though it's not the most entertaining read. No, I think it can be. I remember when I was a kid, one of my favorite books to read was just, I think it was, it might have been Audubon Society or Somebody's Guide to Reptiles. Mm -hmm. And it was just an identification book that had great color photos in it and descriptions of like the habitat and behavior and characteristics of all that. It wasn't very literary. It didn't really have a plot, but... For some reason, I, you couldn't get it out of my hands. Well, I think kids in general are drawn to just encyclopedic volumes of anything. You know, if it's, mm-hmm. if it's uh, alphabetized and have some, some colors and some stats in there, they're going to they're gonna go for it. Those are some of the very, very first books that were piled on top of my desk at the library. Those books with tons of photos in them and fun facts, that is how you decide to lose yourself and dive deep into this world um, of wildlife that lives around you. 
And uh, to, to bring it uh, back completely to birds, do you keep any birds as pets? I do not. In my opinion, I don't have space big enough to house them. Um, I don't think I would in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, I am more than content observing them in their natural habitat. Um, it's tougher because sometimes you uh, spend hours waiting for one little song that you hear over a uh, hundred feet away. Um, but that is more than enough to bring a smile through my face to know that this tiny little bird that spent its winter in South America is now passing through Atlanta on the way to Canada. Um, it is magical almost. That is really cool. It makes you feel so connected with the world. Before we let you go, is there anything else you wanted to talk to us about today? Anything really, really burning that's on your mind? I think that people should get out and enjoy the world around them. That is most important to me. Whether it's you taking a vacation to a uh, national wildlife refuge somewhere in the United States, or whether it's just taking a couple of minutes and stepping out to your backyard without any uh, electronic devices to uh, bother you. Um, Just step out and enjoy the world around you. And yes, I'm going to be biased here. Look up. Look into the trees. (laughs) You never know what you may find in those trees. There are tiny dinosaurs that are flying around you at all times. So take a step back and look up. Well, Jason, I just want to say thanks so much again for joining us today. This has been really great. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Robert and I will discuss some follow-up from our conversation with Jason. Okay, we're back. Now, we wanted to follow up on some of the things that came up in our conversation with Jason. So one of the things that he mentioned was the ways that artificial light in cities can affect bird populations. He was specifically focusing on the ways that it favored visual hunting strategies of avivores like the peregrine falcon. And I wanted to mention some interesting parallels to to that, some other light anomalies within urban environments and how it affects birds. So here's a pretty weird one. The National September 11th Memorial and Museum in New York runs this annual event called the Tribute in Light. Have you ever seen this, Robert? I believe so, yes. It is, if you haven't seen it, as you might guess, a memorial to all the people who died in the September 11th terrorist attacks. And the form the memorial takes is that it pulls together 88 searchlights and arranges them into two enormous beams of light shooting into the sky, I guess, to suggest the Twin Towers. And some of the literature refers to these beams as the Towers of Light or the Phantom Towers. But this event has a creepy and mysterious side involving birds, especially some years. So I want to quote uh, a section from Brandon Keim writing an article about what happened at the ninth anniversary ceremony uh, in an article for Wired in 2010. Quote, Illuminated in the beams were thousands of small white objects, sparkling and spiraling, unlike anything seen on other nights. Some viewers wondered if they were scraps of paper or plastic caught in updrafts from the spotlight's heat. From beneath, it was at times like gazing into a snowstorm. It was hard not to think of souls. But what were they? They were birds. Hmm. 
spiraling around in the spotlights. Now, we all know birds, uh, of course, that lots of bird species are seasonal migrants. I've read that roughly a quarter of Earth's birds are seasonal migrants. Uh, And in the northern hemisphere, what that means is that they fly south to warmer weather in the winter. And in September, a lot of birds are going to be migrating south. And New York City actually lies right along a major migration corridor. Now, normally flying at night makes a lot of sense for birds because birds use less energy then and they're more hidden from predators. Cover of darkness is very nice if you're a prey species. This sort of goes back to what Jason was talking about with the predation, right? But of course, it also comes with costs. Like, how do you know which way you're supposed to go if it's dark out? But birds, fortunately, they've got these navigational strategies. They have a sort of internal compass that can help orient them in their north-south migrations. And it turns out this compass is calibrated somehow with respect to lights of various kinds, maybe sunlight, starlight, moonlight. So large sources of urban light along migratory paths have the ability to interfere with nighttime flight if the circumstances line up in just the wrong way. And those circumstances would be things like the timing of the migration, phase of the moon, the weather conditions, and so forth. And uh, at the time of this this 2010 event when all these birds were spiraling in the spotlights, John Rowden, a citizen science director at the New York chapter of the Audubon Society, estimated that about 10,000 birds got trapped in this light cage. Oh, wow. And, of course, what happens to a lot of these birds is, you know, they're on an intensely uh, restricted energy budget, right? Mm -hmm. And just wasting tons of energy spiraling up and down in a beam of light because you're confused and you don't know where to go, that can actually prove fatal. So, like, birds were falling to the ground exhausted or dead, or even if they eventually made it out, they they had severely wasted a lot of energy that was necessary for them to survive. And I think one of the important things to drive home about this is, I mean, for starters, just artificial light uh, in general, the likes of which you would encounter typically in New York City, is a spectacle that did not exist for the vast majority um, of, of the of, of the evolutionary time on Earth. Yeah, and another thing to keep in mind, people might not even think of this because you think, okay, well, people have at least been lighting fires for thousands of years, mm-hmm. right? But the intensity and not just the intensity, but the frequency spectrum right. of light has changed a lot over time. So not only are lights brighter than they used to be, we're producing different frequencies of light because of the light sources. Fire produces a very different kind of light than, say, a fluorescent light or an LED does. Yeah, like a, a an extremely – like the Las Vegas Strip is a, a totally different uh, light spectacle than, say, a forest fire, even though they are both impressive in their own right. Exactly right. And many animals, though we code all of that as light, it's just something we see by, many animals actually do respond differently to different spectra of light. And so that kind of thing can have a biological difference. But with these phantom towers, we're, we're again talking about a concentration then that is a, a that is a, a magnitude above what is even typical in, say, New York City. Right. And even the natural, not natural, but the normal artificial light generated by New York City at night can be enough to cause some problems. Mm-hmm. This anomaly, you know, this sort of like one night a year anomaly is, is this huge problem. So these 10,000 birds get trapped, you know, roughly, that's just the estimate, uh, at this one event, and they spiral and spiral. And so eventually what happened this year was that the people running the uh, running it were convinced to turn the lights off for 20 minutes, and then the birds were able to get away. But then when they turned the lights back on, it happened again. So mm. they just kept repeating this cycle of they'd have the lights on, birds would become trapped in this spiraling light cage, 
and then they'd have to turn it off for a few for a few minutes and let the birds escape. But it's also crazy to think of how this light uh, acts. Uh, we talked about, I think in the last episode, we mentioned the vacuum cleaner effect, the way it just sucks in oh, birds yeah. from, from all around. And again, we just see an example of, I mean, who would have expected this? I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, some people would have expected it, but certainly this is pr- probably not something that was uh, on anybody's mind planning this memorial. Right. I mean, some bird experts probably would have expected right. it. But yeah, not normally. Pe- people, they just say, oh, yeah, we're just having some lights. I mean, there's lights all the time. What's yeah. the big deal? So a more comprehensive study of this was actually published in uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2017 by Van Doren et al. And the, it was a team of ornithologists who, who did a study to track the tribute in light's effects on birds. So this one specific annual event, tracking it over seven years. And they estimated that over that period of seven years, the event disoriented about 1.1 million migrating birds. So when the lights were on, quote, bird densities near the installation exceeded magnitudes 20 times greater than surrounding baseline densities during each year's observation. So it, it is working like this vacuum cleaner. It's sucking in all these birds that are migrating from the surrounding countryside. But as we mentioned, other things that are bright lights at night can also disorient can, can also disorient birds. So skyscrapers, tall buildings, sports stadiums, oil rigs. And there's a pretty easy way to make a difference here. Turn off the lights during migration. Yes. Uh, and so there are these things known as lights out campaigns that can help. And this would be like where a building manager would agree to turn off the lights in a skyscraper during a period when birds are expected to be passing through. Right. I, I like the idea of putting night vision goggles on all of the players in a football or soccer game. I think that would, <laughs> That's great. That would really add us. It would be like, uh, you know, a, a Tom Clancy Rainbow Six kind of uh, <laughs> take on the sport. You'd have to put them on the spectators, too, though, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. It would be um, it would be. A, a, a Buffalo Bill-esque uh, sporting uh, spectacular for everybody involved. I like the idea also that the announcers would have to be whispering as yes. if they were doing a covert mission. You know? Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, as you would expect, the effects of artificial lights on birds and cities don't stop there, uh, not by any means. So I want to mention just one more study I found. It was in uh, Proceedings of the Royal Society of London B in Biological Sciences from 2013 by Dominoni, uh, Ketting, and Partecki. And this was a study that looked at the effects of nighttime artificial light on European blackbirds or Turtus marula. And they said that, quote, birds exposed to light at night developed their reproductive system up to one month earlier and also molted earlier than birds kept under dark nights. Furthermore, city birds responded differently than forest individuals to the light at night treatment, suggesting that urbanization can alter the physiological phenotype of songbirds. Now, why did this happen? It's kind of hard to say for sure, but there are probably going to be a lot of pressures at play here, plus just some of the normal ways that light can affect hormonal frequencies. I mean, we've even heard this about the way light affects our own hormones. Oh, yes. Our artificial light effect. If you're like looking at uh, bright lights right before you go to bed, this can cause mm-hmm. problems with the hormones that you normally need to have to get to sleep. Such as that uh, bright little screen that uh, we all have such a difficulty detaching ourselves from. Yeah, even I have this problem. Mm-hmm. 
And I just want to say also that uh, in the last episode, we were talking a lot about this book by uh, Minno Skiltausen, the, the Dutch researcher who wrote this book, Darwin Comes to Town, that was all about uh, the evolution of animals for urban settings. And he has a whole chapter on the evolution of blackbirds in urban settings. And it, he's, he's essentially advancing a case based on multiple studies that the urban blackbird is in the middle of becoming a distinct species separate from forest blackbirds because of all the changes that the city-dwelling populations are undergoing. That's right, yeah. And uh, uh, Skilthausen has one uh, chapter where he he talks just about pigeons, the darkness pigeons, the pigeons of darkness, if you will. because he talks not only in this book about uh, physical and you know systematic changes uh, in the city, but also about chemical challenges such as uh, you know pollution, right? Basic chemical pollution, and he points to several examples of organisms as, uh, at large that have uh, adapted to survive in polluted environments, such as the the widespread fish known as the the mummy chog, <laughs> which is just a, a great name for a species. Uh, but this is an example of a, of a creature that, that you can find thriving in very polluted areas uh, with the individuals uh, exhibiting uh, enhanced tolerance for the pollutants. Yeah. So, you know, I can't help but be reminded in all of this of um, another Dr. Seuss story, uh, one that you've probably, you're probably familiar with this one, Joe, the Lorax. He speaks for the trees. Yeah, he speaks for the trees. And, and in the book, we, we see fish, birds, and of course, the, some bears that are forced to flee the industrial wastes. But one of the points that uh, Skildhausen uh, makes is that nature can find a way even in a once-lure-poisoned landscape, at least to some level. And he discusses uh, a really interesting avian uh, example of this with our, our most celebrated or reviled urban bird, and that is, of course, the pigeon. He writes that between 2000 and 2004, Russian geneticist N. U. Abukova traveled throughout Europe to catalog the physical features of 9,000 city pigeons. And he noted specifically whether they were pale or, quote, dark sooty gray, which is a genetic distinction in pigeons. And he found that the darker birds were more common in big cities than in less urbanized areas. So he wondered if this was due to, uh, quote, genetic mingling with pigeon fanciers' birds or if something else was at work here. Now, normally when you see coloration patterns changing in in wild animal populations, you might think this has something to do with like either uh, sexual signaling or maybe with predator-prey relationships, right? You would expect uh, – maybe it's camouflage, right? You, you, th- you automatically think of the evolutionary example of the peppered moth, mm-hmm. which famously there's, there's this moth in England that naturalists said, oh, OK, the pigmentation on its uh, wings is changing because of the sooty landscape from pollution, it needs to better blend in with soot-darkened surfaces. Yeah, that was my first thought when I started reading this. I'm like, oh, it's going to be a camouflage issue so Mm -hmm. those pigeons can evade uh, some of the uh, New Yorkers who wish to eat them Um, (laughs) or I I presume want to eat them. Have I already told you about the, the box man? In New York? I don't think so. I was uh, I was up there for World Science Festival one year, and it was one of it was it was not a major park. It was one of these sort of uh, carefully manicured um, areas between two large skyscrapers. It had a little green space, a lot of business people coming out there to um, uh, you know just to to check their phone, maybe eat lunch, and then disappear again. And uh, I was doing much the same thing. I was stopping for a rest, checking my messages before moving on to something else. And there was this guy out there feeding the pigeons. Mm-hmm. And he had next to him like a, a like a beer box, you know, like a cardboard beer crate. Uh, and, you know, it's just some dude 
feeding some pigeons, no big deal. Uh, pigeons coming closer and closer, he's feeding it. And then all of a sudden, he sco- stoops down, grabs the pigeon, stuffs it into the box, and then walks away. What? Yeah. And I've spent, uh, I've spent years uh, wondering uh, what he had in store for that pigeon. Maybe he was a researcher and he was going to do some experiments. Maybe. He, it, it did not seem like it was his, per, his first uh, pigeon uh, kidnapping. Uh-huh. Uh, this seemed like he had a system down. So I don't know if he's eating these things or if it is uh, some sort of le- legitimate or semi-legitimate uh, scientific uh, uh, experiment he's up to or something grotesque and horrifying. Um, I don't know if he speaks for the pigeons so many questions. Yeah, I, I have them all. <laughs> the mystery is consuming me already. Yeah. And I and honestly, I don't know to what extent camouflage would have helped uh, that poor pigeon. Uh, but this particular case, the case of the, the gray pigeons and the pale pigeons, it, it turns out it doesn't have anything to do with camouflage or mate selection, et cetera. It's all about uh, the poison offloading power of darker feather pigmentation. Huh. He points out that evolutionary ecologist Marion Shatterlane provides some answers via her study of Parisian pigeons. So as it turns out, zinc and lead both bind with melanin. Oh, okay. So the presence of heavy metals in the surrounding environment could have a role in selecting for uh, different types of pigmentation just as a way of processing the metals. Right. So you end up with the zinc and lead in your system, right, Uh, as a bird living in an urban environment. The darker the feather the more of this stuff you can offload into the feathers because it's binding with the melanin, uh, which is the the pigment. Okay. So darker birds are better able to purge their bodies of heavy metal pollutants. Uh, The researcher here, uh, Chatelaine, she found that chicks and parents exposed to lead exhibited darker plumage than ones raised in lead-free environments. Paler juveniles died young, indicating that, quote, there is a real evolutionary advantage to having darker feathers in a polluted environment. And it has absolutely nothing to do with what those feathers look like. It's just the chemical properties of what's in them. Right, yeah. So I was was really floored by that. It's just not not something I would have thought of. Because we think of coloration, we do. Like we said, you think of camouflage, you think of mating displays, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. But just the like the, the physical properties of that pigmentation, uh, you know, that, that was not something I had really considered. Yeah, it's fascinating. Oh, by the way, uh, a couple of things I wanted to get back to from our interview with Jason Ward. Uh, we talked a little bit about wild turkeys oh, in yeah. an urban environment. And I realized after the fact that, that many of our listeners may not know uh, much about the North American wild turkey. So these are America's largest ground nesting bird, standing four feet high or 1.2 meters and weighing 20 to 30 pounds. That means up to 13.6 kilograms. So, you know, these are the – they're standing there and they're the size of a child. And again, they're they're slender. So whatever images you've seen of a plump Thanksgiving uh, turkey, uh, this is a different creature altogether. Right. They don't come like pre-saline injected. Right. Uh, They they have a top running speed of 25 miles per hour or 40.2 kilometers per hour. And to put that in perspective, the human running speed record is 27.78 miles per hour or 44.7 kilometers per hour. So if you're an Olympic sprinter, you have a chance <laughs> at, uh, at, at outrunning a wild turkey. They're capable of short flight. Um, so we're talking 60 mile per hour or 96.5 uh, kilometer per hour bursts of speed in the mm-hmm. air. 
and they boast a two-inch bony spurs on their legs for defense. So they're they're Deinonychus. In a way, yeah, there are there are there are distant shades and shadows of Deinonychus. Now you have different accounts of encounters with wild turkeys, and they range from the sort of silent awe that I experienced in my backyard to a, a mad dash to escape their pursuit. If you look around on YouTube, you'll definitely find uh, examples of both. And they can be destructive to human constructions, as you know, as you might imagine, digging around with their with their claws. I've seen accounts of them uh, scraping up automobiles, uh, and certainly they might frighten you. Uh, but uh, while they were once found throughout North America, uh, they were pushed to the brink of extinction in the 20th century, and they've since bounced back. Uh, they've been pushed into urban areas by uh, population pressures, and once they find their way into a predator-free uh, location with readily available food, well, then that's, that's what they go wild for. And so in some areas, they have become a bit of a problem, a bit of a nuisance. And usually what is prescribed there is, uh, is, is just do not approach them, do not feed them, uh, because as with any wild animal, like that's where problems occur. Right. Now, another one of the awesome birds that came up in our conversation with Jason was the cassowary. Yes. And while the, the cassowary is a rainforest bird that, as far as I can tell, is, is not an urban nuisance anywhere, um, it is still a very impressive animal. Uh, so I just wanted to add a few details here. Uh, so we're talking several species of large flightless birds that are found in New Guinea, uh, nearby islands, and in Australia. And they reach heights of 5 feet tall, or 1.5 meters. And they are just impressive animals with this bright blue coloration. They have this bony cask on the top of their head, which it reminds one of the oh, like a dinosaur's bony mm -hmm. cask, you know, like something you might see on uh, Parasaurolophus or something. Dilophosaurus. And, yeah. And the, the, my, my understanding is that uh, one of the predominant theories about it is that they use it uh, when they are running through the underbrush as a way to sort of cut through and uh, push uh, branches out of the way. Huh. And they could conceivably need it because uh, their running speed, top running speed, is about uh, 31 miles per hour or 50 kilometers per hour. And uh, it, when it comes to claws, well, we, uh, uh, Jason mentioned that they are you know, dangerous animals mm -hmm. uh, to, to have in an enclosure. You have to be extra careful with them and extra um, you know, cautious around them. And that's because they have an inner claw that reaches uh, five inches in length or 125 millimeters. So we're talking an impressive dagger there just stored away for defensive purposes. So you wouldn't want to go starting fights with a cassowary? No, but but and, and there there are historical accounts, especially from World War II. Uh, I understand where American service uh, men would encounter cassowaries, and there are some some tales here and there of uh, of violence uh, perpetrated by cassowaries against uh, you know, human or um, canine aggressors. But uh, you know they they are large wild animals, and if they are threatened, they are going to respond. But uh, otherwise, I would say the cassowary is just a, a wholly blameless creature. They've got the Pope hat to prove it. Yeah, <laughs> they do. They have the bony Pope hat right there on top of their head. Now, we've uh, already talked about light pollution, but what about noise pollution? Yeah, this is another thing Jason mentioned was that uh, when we asked him about mating for birds in cities, mm -hmm. what kind of pressures existed. And he mentioned that a major problem for bird mating in cities is that lots of birds have courtship rituals that involve song. But if a male bird's mate calling song can't be heard over all the traffic and jackhammers and so forth, 
how can the birds reproduce? How can they survive? This sounds like a question from a Harry Nielsen song for some reason, you know? <laughs> how can the birds sing? <laughs> Stamp, copyright, don't steal my intellectual property. That song is going to be a top 10. Uh, so actually, uh, also in his book, Skiltausen has a whole chapter on this, just on bird song within cities. And one key study here that's pretty interesting is one by Hans Slabakorn and Marguerite Peet from 2003, published in Nature, called Ecology, Birds Sing at a Higher Pitch in Urban Noise. Pretty straightforward findings. They, they found that uh, male great tits, or parsis major, quote, at noisy locations sing with a higher minimum frequency, thereby preventing their songs from being masked to some extent by the predominantly low-frequency noise. So if you are singing at the same frequency as the traffic, it's going to be hard to hear you even if you sing very loud. But if you sing at higher frequencies than the traffic, then you have a better chance of being picked out from the background noise. So this is showing a pressure for urban-dwelling great tits or birds generally that, that sing to attract mates to sing at higher frequencies to uh, be picked out more easily from all of the industrial machinery and jackhammers and construction and cars and buses and everything you would normally hear in a city. But of course, uh, other general findings are that great tits aren't the only birds that do this. And one of the big questions is, does this happen by evolution, meaning that over generations, genes for higher-pitched songs are becoming more common over time? Or does this happen by plasticity, meaning are birds actively adjusting the pitch in reaction to the environment? And it looks like there are some cases of both, right? Sometimes it's genetic and sometimes it's just plasticity. Sometimes a bird put into a higher-noise environment will actually sing at a higher pitch to adjust. But Skiltausen points out that this is in competition with some other pressures. For example, some bird species, uh, in some, some of these species, research shows that in natural settings, females generally prefer males with lower voices. A, a deep voice is more attractive to them because it seems to better signal fitness. Thus, there's a sexual selection advantage for lower frequency songs. But in cities, those preferable lower frequency songs can't be heard. So there's an environmental pressure going opposite of the sexual selection pressure. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter how much of a, like an, an avian berry w uh, white you are. Uh, if you can't be heard, right. it's not going to make an impact. Right. They can't get any of your love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> better to be Little Richard or one of the Bee Gees, right? Uh, if that's the only way to be heard, yeah. that's the only way to be heard. One more interesting study of how human noise affects birds, uh, Skilthausen mentions this one in his book as well, uh, is associated with a University of Colorado researcher named Clinton Francis who studied the effects of industrial noise on bird populations in the desert of New Mexico because uh, th that was actually an interesting place because what you've got in the desert of New Mexico is – it's full of oil and gas wells. Mm -hmm. And some oil and gas wells have these noisy compressors and others don't and they're pretty quiet. And this allows you to isolate pretty much just the variable of noise because the surrounding environment is otherwise the same. And so the, the only thing that's different is whether industrial noise is present. And in studying the differences between these noisy versus quiet oil and gas wells, he and his team found that birds with a lower frequency call or song, such as morn the morning dove, were absent from the noisy well locations, probably because they couldn't be heard. 
Meanwhile, birds with high-pitched voices uh, like the chipping sparrow were all around them. And some birds he found even preferred the noisy areas, presumably because the noise drove away predators. So if you're a bird that gets preyed on by one of these low-voiced predators that doesn't like the noisy areas, then you might do well to put up nests right beside this humming huh. compressor. Now, we asked Jason in our interview about the, the idea of future evolution in a city. Uh, what kinds of um, spectacular or, or uh, lackluster forms will we see in the future? Uh, you know, the, the things like will, will rat, raccoons drive cars or hover cars, <laughs> as, it, uh, as it were. I mean, what, what kind of future evolution might take place in a human urban environment? Do raccoons not drive cars now? They There's might. There's got to be some YouTube videos. <laughs> I mean, they're so skilled and they're so secretive. The coyotes are probably driving cars. We just don't see them. Right. Uh, of course, we, we're going to have carnivorous predatory rats that attack large prey by swarming. <laughs> what no, is, no. What is the, uh, the, the classic movie about what, food of the gods? Is that about urban rats uh, I, I, swarming over everybody? I, you know, I am way behind on rat swarm movies. Uh-huh. I've got to I've got to catch up on that. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I mean – In addition to all of the stuff we have already talked about, I mean, I think we should not be surprised if many years down the road we see lots of the wildlife dwelling within cities having adaptations like adaptations to climb and dwell on smooth, rocky surfaces like buildings and stuff and adapted resistance against poisons and pollutants and traps and obvious stuff you would expect. But another thing that I think might be an interesting general trend among all kinds of animals is a selection driving towards animals that are more neophilic, meaning attracted to unusual objects. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about this in the last episode about how often in nature it pays to be conservative and to not go near things that are unusual because they could be dangerous. But in cities, a lot of times things that are unusual are going to be rewarding. Yeah, yeah, we talked about the raccoon and it's uh, especially the urban raccoon and it's uh, it's it's, it's pro- proclivity to just jump in there and try something just to start fiddling with it and see what its secrets are. Yeah, so animals that are more and more willing to investigate and figure out unusual objects and situations I think are going to generally have some some things working out in their favor in cities. They're going to be getting more nutrition, coming across more and more delicious garbage of various mm-hmm. kinds that we, we can't even imagine the garbage of tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you're going to have this selection pressure towards neophilia, which also I think will mean more of a pressure towards animals that are comfortable with humans around, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this only works if the humans don't exert a counter pressure by attacking the animals when they mm-hmm. come around, right? So I, I, here's my, my two-pronged prediction. Animals with neophilia more likely to come around weird novel situations and objects and to approach humans, but also animals that are at the same time cuter and cuter. Ah, well, in this we get into that the, the classic rivalry between uh, uh, the possum and the raccoon. Yeah. Because the raccoon, the adult raccoon is cute and the babies, of course, are super adorable. But with the possum, the babies are adorable, but the, the adults <laughs> are, are a little ghastly in appearance. But imagine the, the possum of the future <laughs> <laughs> that, like, it's too cute to call the pest control on, you mm-hmm. know? Oh, so maybe, yeah, I, I can see there being a, a, an evolutionary advantage in being a cute possum and therefore uh, uh, nature ends up selecting for cute possums. So basically I'm predicting a future with cities full of humans and Ewoks 
you know, <laughs> very uh, curious problem-solving teddy bears that are so cuddly looking. But of course, the other side to this, I, I can't help but think, and I imagine you probably thought about this too, as a dog owner, is that it's it's one thing to be able to get along with the humans, but you're ultimately going to have to get along with their dogs as well. That's because true. Because if you were seen as a threat to somebody's uh, fur baby, uh, then that's going to be a reason uh, for the humans to rise up against you as well. Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's always going to be things in tension, right? Mm-hmm. You know, some animals are going to be selected for because they, they're scrappers and they're fighters and they can survive tough competition environments and other things are going to be selected for because they're perceived as harmless and mm-hmm. they they get along well. I guess I'm not ultimately sure which pressure will win out, though. I, I don't know. I mean, if you've got humans, a city full of humans, and humans have all these pest control tactics in, in their arsenal, it does seem like urban dwelling animals would do well to do everything they can not to be perceived as pests. Hmm. Now, one other uh, issue that comes to mind on this is just that it's easy to think of the human city as something fixed and unchanging. You know, it is this artificial environment that we have made and we push the elements of change out of the picture. But, of course, cities undergo constant evolution of their own sort. Of course. Technology changes. uh, 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 Environmental policies change. Uh, People realize, oh, we need more plants around. We need more parks. Or you you look at some of these more... uh, uh, gosh, I haven't really uh, looked at any of the um, some of these uh, recently, but you've seen these plans for the future cities where everything's uh, covered in green. It's mm-hmm. it's like a the, the hanging gardens of Babylon all over again, and ha- and you can imagine how an initiative like that, if it were really carried out to its full potential, how that would alter some of the factors that we've set up here. Well, at the end of his book, Skiltausen actually lays out a plan for designing good green spaces mm-hmm. within cities that would be favorable toward the evolution of urban organisms, you know, so like the the animals and plants living within cities, they could, we could design green spaces in cities that help them out or green spaces in cities that destroy them. Right. And so he's got this whole plan for how best to do that. And one of his key points, he's got several points, I think four of them, but one of his key points is that while normally you don't want to favor like – normally if you were creating a garden or something like that, it, it would be great to favor native species, species that are local to the area where this garden is. But in urban environments, there's an indication that urban environments are essentially a fundamentally different kind of environment now mm-hmm. than the surrounding landscape. So there is a case to be made and he, he sort of makes this case that maybe what you should do is select the types of plants that are already thriving within the city as opposed to trying to favor what's local to the surrounding countryside. Yeah, because the surrounding countryside is dead in the city. The yeah. city, it's, it, you're not going to be able to bring it back to that level in most cases. Um, and, and there are other changes one has to take in, into account too. Uh, I mean, for starters, is just the realization that humans uh, are never um, shy about taking a, a step or even a massive step backwards uh, in their um, uh, in, in their their, their policy making and their uh, uh, attention to, uh, uh, to to their environment, uh, so one has to consider that. Uh, yeah, also, you can't you can't just count on progress, right? And uh, and then or you know in a way it's like like taking a step back comes with progress because you take that one step forward and you're like, hey, well we did this, we maybe we can not uh, worry as much about this other area of uh, of, of uh, urban environmental development. 
Uh, also, just the fact that, hey, if something something were to happen to uh, the human species, uh, our cities would not continue on uh, cared for by robot caretakers just yet. They would fall into ruin and decay. They would become a drastically different artificial environment as they cascaded back to something resembling the original uh, ecosystem of the area. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, too, we have to look at, say, our, uh, our coastal cities and how rising seawaters are going to affect uh, those uh, locations, portions of those cities potentially being underwater and becoming uh, an, an aquatic uh, marine habitat. And of course, we've seen that for thousands of years with uh, cities that have sunken into the sea due to, say, seismic activity, uh, where they cease to be a human habitat and an artificial uh, 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 ecosystem for land-dwelling creatures, and now they are a habitat for the marine species that live in the vicinity. Can you imagine in thousands of years the Atlantis-like myths that people will tell about the fabled land of Miami or of New York City that used to be this once great city that has sunken into the ocean. Yeah. I mean, Miami is a great example of a city that we're talking about, like the idea of a city as a fixed and unchanging thing. Like mm-hmm. Miami was built with with that kind of notion in mind. Let's uh, let's build this fixed thing in an area that is not fixed, in an area that is highly susceptible uh, to, uh, to alteration uh, because of the sea. But then one of the take-homes here is that Animals, birds, uh, these other species we've talked about, like that is how life works. Yeah. That is how real life works. It adapts. It, it rolls with change. Uh, humans are the ones that are uh, uh, entirely resistant to that sort of change. Yeah. Well, the, the, the wildlife adapts to the environment, but the environment is changed by the wildlife and the environment changes for reasons of its own. I mean, not, obviously it doesn't do this on purpose, but mm-hmm. the environment is also always changing. The only constant is change at every level of everything. Yeah. And of course, that just brings us back to our uh, I Ching episode from, from a few <laughs> weeks back. So if you want to hear more about uh, about the nature of change in, uh, in, in uh, the human experience, then, uh, then that's a great episode to return to. And of course, you'll find that episode and all other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at our website, stufftoblowyourmind.com. That has it all, as well as a blog post and links out to our various social media accounts. Of course, you can also get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And we just urge you to support the show uh, by leaving us a review. If there are, st- if there are stars available, throw us, uh, throw us five stars, throw us ten stars, however many, whatever the <laughs> maximum is. That would be great. Maybe a nice review as well. That's right. Now, big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know your feedback about this episode or any other, or to let us know a topic you think we should cover in the future, or just to say hi, tell us who you are, how you found out about the show, and so forth, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.